In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Amanda Gibson is our guest this week on Money Tales. Amanda started adulting when she was 12 years old. As Amanda tells us, she developed a budget and related proposal to move out and pitched it to her parents. It was rejected. Only four years later, she was successful and started an independent life of her own. Reflecting on this years later, Amanda views curiosity as her superpower to imagine a financially secure life of her own at such a young age. Curiosity has served Amanda well throughout her money life. After many years in corporate America, Amanda pivoted and started her own firm. Today, she works with CEOs and other senior executives to create paths through complexity and chaos. Amanda serves as a strategic partner, as well as a certified executive coach, helping ambitious leaders be the leader that they want to be. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Amanda hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like to move out of her parents' home, get a job, contribute to a 401k, and buy her own house all before starting college. Second, how adults can be inhibited from asking questions about things they think they should know, but don't. And third, how she developed a financial runway to make sure she had enough money to cover expenses when launching her own business and what she learned from that experience. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, on to our conversation with Amanda Gibson. Hey, everyone. We're excited to have a great money conversation with our special guest on Money Tales today. Before we introduce our guests, I have a favorite question for you, Sandy. Tell us about the money conversations you've had recently. Oh, Cammie, we've been having some interesting money conversations in our family. Ooh, tell us more. Sadly, and I feel like I always talk about my son and never my daughter on Money Tales, but my son ended up in the ER over the weekend. He's fine, but he had to get eight stitches in his head because of a freak baseball accident. But anyway, we were in the hospital waiting for the doctor. And again, he is totally fine. Thank goodness. It could have been a lot worse. We were having conversations about health insurance. What a perfect time. We had plenty of time in that ER and we got really great care, but it was interesting just to talk about why we were going to the ER instead of urgent care. And my son was asking, well, how much does it cost to be here? It's interesting because I have no idea. It's the interesting thing about our healthcare system. It's so true. Yeah. So we had an opportunity to talk about health insurance, how it works, how payments work along the way and why it's a privilege in this country to be able to have the great health care that we were able to have and how grateful we were for the doctor for sewing him up 
in a way that hopefully won't have a big Frankenstein scar on his forehead <laughs> for the rest of his life. I'm so glad he's fine. And as you know, I was in that same ER a couple months ago with a broken wrist. It's true. We have insurance and we can do that type of work, but you don't know what the costs are and you just sort of wait for the bills to come in. It's the strangest thing. What else do you buy where you don't know what it costs? <laughs> Can't think of anything else. Let's welcome our guest today, Amanda Gibson. It's wonderful to be talking with you on Money Tales. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Please start us off by introducing yourself and provide two or three pivotal moments in your life really impacting you and who you are today. Well, I think I'll start the story before I tell you who I am. I'll say that when I was a child, I think I wanted nothing more than to be an adult. So by the time I was 12, I had created a budget and proposal to move out and pitched that to my parents. It was rejected. <laughs> tell us about this pitch because that sounds pretty interesting. The proposal was, I'm going to make some money doing odd jobs and you're going to make up the difference of what I need so that I can go live on my own. And it's going to be a good deal for you because all these different reasons of how it was going to eliminate some of their stress and net savings and all of these different things that they were going to get out of this exchange if they just provided a little bit of matching funds, I guess you could call it. <laughs> and they weren't on the same page as you? They were not on board with the proposal. Did you have a pitch deck? Are you a one-pager kind of person? It was on paper. And if I could have used Excel at that point, I probably would have. It was very organized into columns with different categories of this budget and then grand total that I would need. And then here's the difference that you're going to make up here. <laughs> I think that tells us a lot about you, Amanda. This is going to be fun. <laughs> it probably tells you too much because despite that very strong rejection that I received when I was 12, I still work to put the wheels in motion to piece together what I needed so that I was able to actually graduate and rent a house when I was 16 and move out. Not quite when I wanted to, but still... Four years. Not bad. That's amazing. Why were you so eager to be grown up and out of the house? I just thought that adults had so much freedom. And that was just the ideal state. I wanted to be able to make more of my own choices. I wanted to be able to pursue more of my own interests, see more of the world. Did you do that? I did. So at first, when I moved out, I became primarily concerned with keeping the roof over your head because as you do when you're 16, you don't think that long term. You have this idealized version of what this is going to look like. And the reality was I ended up with a 401k and a mortgage actually before I even started college. No way. Unbelievable. So was very much an adult very early on in a way that made me go, ah, once I got through college, I ended up going to college on nights and on weekends while I'm working in this very full-time role and got a finance degree got an international business degree. The plan was I really wanted to work for more of a global company. And I was struggling to get my foot in the door at any sort of global company because I had no global experience other than a degree. And so I thought, I've always wanted to see the world. Let me just do something that makes me stand out here. And I was able to move abroad and was very concerned about a resume gap that was less acceptable than that is now. And so I was very concerned about that. By working abroad? Yeah, because now I think it's more acceptable to take a year off and do whatever you need to do in that year. I did not see that as an option at that time. And so I was able to design this experience in a way that I did take a Spanish class in the morning, but I worked the rest of the day at this technology park in the Basque Country. So I was able to do both. We had many long holiday weekends and I was able to see more of the world there, but also still do it in this responsible way that I cared so much about at that time and keep that resume intact without a resume gap. Amanda, this is incredible. What did you do with your home when you moved abroad? 
I sold it. That was really interesting because I had to quit the job. I had to sell the house. It was a major upheaval. I never felt like that was an option to even explore anything, even in the college experience, because I was working. And so it was like, even the idea of going to college was, I'm going to have to go here locally because distance learning, I think, was newer at that time. But I don't think you could get a whole degree online like you can now. My options were here or quit a job and figure out what to do with my house. And I just couldn't see that far ahead. And so I chose to go here locally on the nights and weekends. Did you make a profit in the sale of the home? No. So unfortunately, when I ended up quitting my job, it was in the middle of the recession. So despite all of these steps that you do, which was really hard for me, having a finance degree, it's like, I've done all the right things. I have the job. It made me wrestle with the idea of who I was and how responsible was I really if things weren't working out the way that they were sort of supposed to in my spreadsheet version of the world at that time. But I really wanted to try new things and get into new roles. And at some point, you have to make hard decisions and do what you need to do to get the thing that you want to get. It's a really great money lesson in there. There are so many things we can control to be very smart about money and the decisions we're making in service of our goals. But there are things like the global economy that we can't control. There is a dance between what we can control, what we can't control. And it sounds like in the end, you were really following your heart and wanting to go abroad and remain dedicated to that. Kudos to you, Amanda. I'm still very curious because you did so much at such a young age before you were formally educated out of high school. How did you know about mortgages and 401ks? And what was that education like? Really great question. I think I've always been very interested in investigating all sides of an issue. And so at that time, again, with this young brain that you have, you really do think that it is possible to know everything. (laughs) And I'm also just very curious about the world at large. And so I saw it as my duty to read everything and research everything and figure out as much as I could, which I think is why that was such a big blow to me as well. When I realized it doesn't work out on paper, like despite all the work that you put in and despite all the research that sometimes things just don't go the way that you plan or they can if you're willing to wait longer. But I remember reading all of the fine print and all of the documents and talking to a 401k. I asked people questions. I think a lot of people are scared to ask questions. And I get in there and I'm like, well, how does this work? What does this fine print mean? And I've realized that's rare. Like in my most recent car purchase, I seem to cause a lot of frustration for the salespeople (laughs) because most people just sign and don't ask questions is what I was told. (laughs) Why do you think people are reluctant to be as curious as you are? ask the questions and do the work. I think there's this idea that we're supposed to know. It goes back to that identity piece. It's like, well, if I don't know, then what does that say about who I am? And there's lots of fear of looking stupid. So many underlying fears that people have about asking questions in general, and then especially money. Luckily, I guess for me, and overwhelmingly, I think sometimes for me, I felt like it was my job to know all these things if I was going to be a real adult. I have these discussions with a lot of people. And what I see in a lot of people is they take it as some sign of failure that they're not a real adult if they don't know. And so I just tackled it very early head on and took it as my job to investigate. Whereas I think others sometimes think, what does it mean about me or my chances of success or something else if they're not able to figure it out? So you were young, you were curious as you were starting to adult at a young age, you still very much had a beginner's mind. So there was no downside to asking questions, which is brilliant. There's a lot of learning in there for all of us. I would love to say that I maintain that forever. But I will say much like any other person, I ended up in that my plan worked. I moved abroad, came back, had this global career that was about a decade long where I worked in a variety of different capacities. But 
I think like anyone, you can't escape this life without getting to a point where you're in a position where you do think you should know because you've had so much experience or because you're in a position where somebody's looking at you like you should have the answers. It's funny that you call it the beginner's mindset because I've noticed in more recent years that I give myself more permission to be a beginner when I don't think I should know. But when I do think I should know, that's a little bit harder of a mental battle for me. So what did you do when you came back from Spain? I had several different roles over a 10-year span. I worked with small, medium, and large businesses helping with market development, startup, new product lines. All new things, learning, learning, learning. All new things. It was all learning. It was all figuring out how are we going to put these pieces together to get you where you want to go, whether it was starting a new business or starting a new functional area within a business or expanding into export in some way, shape, or form. I did that all the way up into the point until I left that segment of my life and went out on my own. Started my own practice at the beginning of 2020, a month before the pandemic. Yeah. Great timing. Yes. I always have great timing. I quit my job in the middle of a recession. I start a business before a pandemic. May my timing always be as great as it's been. <laughs> Tell us more about this decision, Amanda, to leave something really aligned with what you were interested in doing, but you went out and did something on your own. It was aligned with what I was interested in doing. And I hit this point where, because I like learning so much, and then also because I like helping many different businesses, and I like helping explore with many different areas. And also, I just saw that there was an opportunity after 10 years of doing this, I knew I could do it. And so you get to that point where you think, well, what's the next thing for me where I can really contribute at a higher level? And some of the things that I was noticing were leaders didn't just need strategy around how they're going to get into export markets or how they're going to start a new business, but they needed help navigating really complex situations. So what I do now is not so much in the international space, which is completely fine with me, but I get to pivot between all of these different businesses and working with leaders of all kinds. And I serve as a strategic partner and a certified executive coach. And I work with leaders to help them carve these paths out of the chaos. And ultimately, I want to help them be the leader they want to be. Because there's so much pressure to keep up with everything that's going on in the world and the chaos and make decisions and seemingly mutually exclusive options. And I love creating those different options for people and figuring a way out of the mess. When you started your business in 2020, it sounds like you were professionally ready. You felt confident. There was value you could add. You knew what you wanted to do. Tell us about the personal financial aspect of that, because we also know that you're a planner. How much of a planning runway did you give yourself? And what did it feel like from a personal financial perspective to begin this business? I don't think I did it the smart way. If you were to ask somebody, what do you need to do to plan your way? There are people that help with that and they do a great job with that. Highly recommend giving yourself a little bit more time to feel your way through. But what I knew was that I was leaving a corporate role. I was working a lot. I was traveling a lot and I didn't have that space. So financially, I gave myself a runway. But I also knew that I could never have it figured all out. It's just not possible. And so at some point, I had to jump. And so I gave myself enough financial runway to feel comfortable, at least testing a little bit more and getting my feet underneath me, but not so much. You can always want more. That uncertainty is never going to go away. And so I think people can tell themselves a lot of stories about how much they really need or what they can and can't afford. And that was actually the least hard piece for me because I knew I had to do it and I needed to give myself enough financial runway to make that possible, but not so much that I got complacent in going out and figuring out all these next steps. 
So it sounds like you made sure you had sufficient savings to be able to continue your lifestyle for some period of time without relying on bringing in more income from your self-employment activity too soon. Yeah, definitely give yourself a cushion. It's interesting because the conventional advice around this is give yourself an 18-month to two-year runway to get out so that there's not as much pressure and so that you can really figure out what you want to do. And I think people hear that and think, oh my gosh, I could never afford to not make money for 18 months to two years. But that's not what's happening. You're giving yourself a cushion to weather uncertainty. Like a global pandemic. Yeah, it's just unknown. And so it's that cushion to help balance that risk. You're coaching executive leaders. Do you have money conversations with your clients? Another great question. It comes up always because if it's a CEO or even if it's a senior executive that has a pretty big span of responsibility for their area of the business, there are money mindsets at play all the time. Even if it doesn't come up directly, it's there. And the one that I find the most fascinating is one I encountered myself a few years ago where we had such a focus on savings growing up, but we didn't have a lot of conversations about what are we saving for? I realized a few years ago that it's just more and more and more for the sake of more. And it's funny to see that play out sometimes in businesses at a bigger scale where we all know we need to grow. So we know we need to make money. We know we need to keep stakeholders and shareholders happy. But in the absence of defining what you're trying to get more for or what does good look like outside of just more money, that's when the conversations get really interesting to me is it's like, well, more for what? my conversations center often around what does good look like so that we can be allocating things in the way that they need to be allocated so that your goals are actually met. It's interesting that you bring that up, Amanda. When we talk with clients, the word we use is purpose. What is the purpose of this wealth? What is the purpose of the savings? You need that why in order to move forward and have an emotional connection around what you're doing. Else you could be more robotic and just keep saving and you're massing money to your point, but what are you going to do with it? What do your parents think of (laughs) the life you've created for yourself? You know, we should have had them on today. I would love to ask them. (laughs) Okay, next time. (laughs) I think they're proud and confused, I would say, because I've done things a very different way than what was probably possible for them and also what was taught to me. Sometimes I feel like they look at me with this amazement and other times I feel like they look at me with a little bit of fear because it's just so different than how they are living their lives. But I think there's still this appreciation for the way I do things. I hope. (laughs) Do you talk with your parents about money? We do some. We have very different money mindsets and that's interesting. I find that there's a balance of how many details you need to get into, but we definitely do talk about money, like where their focus is and how they're thinking about allocating things at this stage of their life. And they probably think I talk about it in a responsible way. I should ask them. I'm going to ask them now after this conversation because I was raised in more of the scarcity mindset, trickle-down depression era mentality of we need to save and we need to be responsible. And also just being the oldest of four, I came into the world at their lowest point of income and with their greatest amount of risk ahead of them and unknowns with the rest of their kids. And so They were very conscious of it in my early years. And it seemed to be from a scarcity standpoint. And now I just approach it like, it's out there. We can find it. It's possible. There's options. And I just think that's so foreign to them. It is kind of fun sometimes to talk about it. And at the same time, I feel like we very much approach it from different angles. Your comments make me wonder about the conversations you might be having with your youngest sibling. Because presumably they had a very different experience around money with your parents than you did being the oldest. They did. 
the youngest of the four of us is my sister. And we've talked about this a lot. She actually went and got her doctorate in psychology. And so we have really explored this from all angles. And we also have to be a little bit careful about getting too comparative about whose experience was better or worse or whatever. And we've just kind of agreed that they're different. But it definitely was different because by the time you get to number four, you know that you don't have any more coming. You're also at a higher point of income overall in your household than you were with number one. It was definitely a little bit different in terms of what they were willing to pay for if you're just looking at the financial component of our growing up experience. I'm so glad to hear that you've been talking to your sister about it because I think in many families, we don't explore that. We assume that we're all on the same page and we've all had the same experience when it can be very different and it can cause different mindsets and approaches and preferences. Amanda, you've talked about your shifting money mindset, that it's evolved. With this new mindset, how do you define success today? I would say my relationship with money is the relationship I've had to work on the hardest because it truly is the one that has gotten in the way, caused the most amount of tension in my life in terms of getting in the way of me and the things that I wanted to do. So how I define success around money now is maybe a weird way to define it, but it's a feeling. It's a feeling that I have enough to be me. Because for me, my relationship with money was, it was always the thing between me and what I wanted to do when I was growing up. And then that carries into adulthood. I've had to do a lot of work on just realizing I can do what I want to do. I have enough. And what does enough look like? And what do I want to do? And make sure that I'm matching my needs and wants to the money I have. And so being able to feel like I have enough and not spiral into the, what if there's not enough mentality is a huge success for me. Thanks for sharing the fact that you've had to do a lot of work on this relationship. Many of us feel that way, whether it's coming from money relationship tied to scarcity or abundance or whatever it might be. How did you go about doing that work to get to where you are today with your money relationship? It's concentrated practice. And I would love to say that it was just me, but the relationship that you have with money is kind of the relationship that you have with a lot of things in your life like in terms of how long you think it's going to be around or what you have to do to keep it. And some of those behaviors appear in all these different areas. I did make a concentrated effort to notice what was going on mentally for me when I felt like I had to grasp for more. What is the idea that you have in your head of what is it that you need to do to get money? For a while, I thought that I had to do something that didn't fully allow me to express who I was or that in some way had to be related to some sort of misery. (laughs) Because I think we're told that work is hard work. So then we have this concept of what hard work looks like to make a more tangible example that I had to do, go back and make a very conscious choice to write down examples of when I was doing things that I loved and then make a conscious choice to look for those opportunities because you find what you're looking for. It might sound so basic, but to actually write those things out, you're retraining these pathways in your brain that tell you this is what things need to look like. I did that often. And then I have been very fortunate to have people and find an army of people that have been willing to call behaviors out in me when they see them. I think those first steps of even just noticing what's going on for you, I don't know if you notice them without somebody else calling them out. I think you have to have those people around you that are like, "Um, you can afford this. I'm not sure why you think you can't, but you can. And it starts making you ask these questions of, oh, you're right, I do have a good job. So this is actually a choice for me. Or, oh, you're right, this does work this way for me. So where is that thinking coming from? Instead of get angry at people when they're calling you out on things that don't match up, being willing to say, that is interesting. I guess that does sound like a scarcity mindset. Where is that coming from? And explore that a little bit more. 
Were your friends calling you out on their own or did you invite them to do that once you started journaling and raising your awareness? I think it was kind of in combination. I am a very candid person. For the people I'm closest with, it invites candidness back. Like I just have that relationship with people. I'm also surrounded. I've been surrounded by coaches for almost a decade now. And so that helps too, because coaches have this fun habit of saying, hmm, sounds like that, (laughs) calling it out, letting you sit with it and think about it for a minute. I'm very grateful to everybody who's been willing to do that because it is a hard thing to do. It's important. It is really important. Hey, Amanda, when you set out on your own with this business, I think it's often very difficult to figure out how to charge clients. And I'm curious how you went through that process and how you think about the value you give and the prices you set. That has also been an evolution because at the beginning for me, and I've seen this with others as well, it's that idea of equating work with hours. It's not even work with hours. It's how you feel about the work that you're doing. And are you secure in what you're providing or are you not secure? Do you know the value that you're providing? And so I had to be very conscious about that as well and really breaking it down and identifying where I was adding value so that I didn't do more. Because I will say in past lives or past parts of my career, I have been known to leave my lane and put my hands up for different things. And obviously, if you're always (laughs) doing more than is required of you in a client situation, that's a very quick way to be working all the time. And so I was very purposeful as well about looking at what are the real challenges that I'm solving for here? And what's the value of that for the business if we're able to achieve that outcome? Amanda, what's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? It's definitely with myself. Because when I started this endeavor, it's like anything you start, you don't actually know what it's going to look like. I feel like the world expanded for me at the beginning of all of this. It's almost like a signal is sent out to the universe that just puts a target on your head almost like new business owners. So you just get bombarded with all these different options and opportunities to sift through. Also, I've made so many new connections and built relationships with people that have also opened my eyes to what's possible, not just for what I offer my clients, but what I can do in the world just as a person. I don't think that was at all in the plan. It's just like 2000 times the amount of possibility that I originally anticipated. At this point, I need to sit down and figure out what does that mean? How does that affect the overall financial plan and goals and long-term vision? I love that you're having these conversations with yourself. And it sounds like you've been doing this for some time. It's really powerful. And I also look forward to hearing about your conversation with your parents about money. It sounds like it's going to be a great one. Amanda, thank you very much for joining us on Money Tales and sharing such wisdom and sharing yourself with us. This was fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, Share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.